Welcome to the Shockwave Therapy Podcast. My name is James Woolwich, Osteopath and Clinical Director at the Abbeyfields Clinic in Suffolk. We will be trying to demystify the concept of shockwave treatment whilst bringing together experts in their field to discuss the latest research. If you are deciding on whether to add this modality into your clinic or just improve the way you deliver it, then we hope this is the podcast for you. Today we will be talking about shockwave therapy in bone conditions. Uh, that's everything from non-union fractures through to shin splints. We're joined again today, he's on our eighth episode, that's Professor Carsten Knobloch, a board-certified plastic reconstructive anaesthetic surgeon. Uh, too many societies to list him being a member of, one of them the Fellow of the American College of Surgeons. He's also the current president of the German Society for Extracorporeal Shockwave Therapy board member of the ISMST. So there's uh, nobody better to talk us through uh, the evidence base and research behind behind this uh, use of shockwave for bone conditions. So uh, welcome again, Carsten. Um, thank yeah. you very much for joining again, Carsten. We said we were going to get together yes, again. That's very good of you. So today, um, I think it would be uh, useful to discuss some bone pathologies, um, which often isn't isn't one of the main talking points. But I know from the yes. people that I work with in the UK, we're seeing more and more opportunities to treat things like shin splints as more and more of us have got focus shockwave. Um, and we'll talk about that because a lot of the listeners don't have focus. So they always ask the question, can I use radial for this condition, that condition, etc. So if we if we can, um, I think the best thing to start off with is is shin splints or medial tibial stress syndrome, because they're the most common ones we see in the UK as physiotherapists and osteopaths. So can you could you just start off, I guess, for those people that don't know, just discuss some of the mechanisms behind or the postulated mechanisms behind how it affects bone? Yeah, so uh, it appears that uh, certain, let's say, age groups or population uh, groups are more prone to suffer uh, shin splints or medial tibial distress syndrome than others. So there are some uh, clinical studies from from military personnel, as soon as they enter mandatory military service with age 18 or 20, and uh, they have to march or walk quite some distance, 15, 20 kilometers, with some backpacks, some 30 kilo backpacks, there is a very high rate of shin splints. And actually, the largest study I am aware of uh, in shockwaves, focus shockwaves in chin splints, has been done in Colombia in military personnel. Um, and I reviewed it some years ago. So is this, is this, it is, this, is quite Gar often. Is this the Garcia one in 2000? I think mm -hmm. I found this. You reviewed this 2017, I think it was. Yeah, right, right. Can be, yeah. I'll, right. po I'll post so, it on uh, the end of the podcast as an attachment. Yeah. So actually, uh, military personnel is of uh, is of risk. On the other hand, uh, running um, exercises or every sport where running itself play a major role might prone to develop shin splints. And I myself did an analysis in two thousand eight in running athletes who which were. 300 running athletes running some 60 kilometers every week. And the most frequent overuse injury were Achilles tendon, then came patella tendon, third was plantar fasciitis, and fourth 
was Shinsplint. So in that cohort with some 60 kilometers or six hours in a week running, uh, it is quite frequent. And, and I have uh, some um, um, athletics uh, personnel who, especially if they, it turns season-wise from indoor to all outdoor in March, April, for example, and the change of the surface um, leads to a higher likelihood of shin splints. So it appears that even surface and for sure shoe work uh, will play a role in this uh, in this regard and the number of steps and the mileage and so on. Sure. So this is at least what I know in the moment. Okay, and when, when and 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 talking about the, just summarize if you can some of the mechanisms that are thought to help when you when you place shockwave upon a bone what what are the what because we we know a little bit about how it works with tendons we know you know more than we do about bone i think certainly from what i've read so what are the postulated mechanisms by which you think that helps healing in bone so actually uh, if it comes to shin splints uh, it appears that it is not only not only a bone problem where you might see an mri some bone edema but oftentimes you see some periostitis, so some, let's say, inflammation around the bone, in the chest of the bone, for example, and maybe even in the adjacent tendon, so uh, TBLS anterior tendon might be um, deteriorated or inflamed as well. So I would put chin splint as a combined injury, overuse injury of the bone and the surrounding tissue, say, uh, tendon and periosteal sheath. And there is an inflammation. And it appears that on bone, and we will talk later on, on shockwaves in bone and the history on bones, but it appears that there are some beneficial effects, especially when you consider focused shockwave because you have to have high energy, apparently in the moment, to get a bony cell reaction. So we are aware that osteoblasts who, uh, or which um, encourage the, uh, or build up the bone are stimulated. There might be even some interaction with uh, osteoclasts. There are some beneficial effects on cytokines, bone morphogenic protein and so on. So some growth factors bone-wise are stimulated in a kinetic fashion by shockwaves. And there might even be effects on so-called gap junctions, which are tiny channels within the cell membrane. And these uh, gap junctions coordinate communication in between cells, so bone cells in that way. And it appears that focus shockwave can somehow be beneficial in the interplay of these uh, gap junctions and connexin channels. So there are, at least in my view, multiple potential effects which uh, support or underpin the beneficial role of focus shockwave in bony disorders let's put it this way okay and so are we, are we really you know as i hinted at the start are we really talking about focus shockwave because of the energy it can produce in essence for bone pathology whether it be stress fractures to non-unions you don't do you know of anything where radial has been used where it where it gets at least some evidence or is it really just not going to be producing the energy we need so in the moment i am aware of a single 
I think, cohort study from Southern America, I think from Brazil, where they did pseudotrosis of lung bones. I think it was tibia with radial shockwaves. And this is the only single report I'm aware of with a um, sample size larger than five, you know, as okay. a, besides case studies. Yeah. And on the other hand, we have some 40, no, 35, 35 years of experience of using focal shock waves on bones beneficially. So if it only, if you only take the number of publications, I would say there is the overwhelming vast majority of papers dealing with bone problems in study conditions yeah. are using focus shortwave. And we have only one cohort study, not controlled, no randomization, not so on from a single country in, in Brazil. Yeah. Um, so I would say from that point of time, we have solid evidence for focus shockwave. And we have nil to nothing, some anecdotal, I would say, on potential uh, application with radial. However, as of now, and it's what we say in, in our German shockwave society, and on bones, oh. have to have high energetics, meaning higher than 0.25 millijoule, speaking of focus shockwave. Okay. So that's what we know now in the year 2020. It might be different in five, 10 years time when there might be much more studies, well organized randomized trial, maybe comparing radial and focus shockwave, same frequency, same energy levels. Um, it might be that they might be even working. However, as of now, we only can say it for sure for focus shockwave. Okay. And if you, from from your point of view, when you're treating someone with shin splints, um, and we talked about the energy levels there, do you what is your what is your average that you would see the patient for in terms of sessions? Because we know with tendinopathies, as we're always talking about three to six sessions. Do you get them in once a week for three four sessions? And how many how many shocks do you apply over that area? So usually, um, I see patient or I estimate that I do three to five sessions focus shockwave. I usually do it once a week, maybe every second week, depends on scheduling of patient and so on and on training level and so on. Yeah. Um, and I usually do 2000 shots per leg if it's both legs, so 2,000 shots for both legs. And I start slow and low. So on a, let's say, very, very nano-energetic level, point or 0.2, I start in the area where I marked beforehand on the shin splint where, where the location is. And I go over the medial side and get or elevate my um, energy until patient feels something. Okay. And then I try to get the idea where the epicenter of the pain is in this given patient. And then I play around and, and increase pain driven by the patient 
my energy levels. And sometimes if it's very, uh, very uh, active and very painful, it might be that I can only apply nano energetic 0.03.05 millijoule. On the other hand, it might be that uh, um, I can go up to medium energetic 0.1.15 millijoule, but very rarely I do high energetics in mm. shin splints only, which is, in my view, one argument, just as an observation, that not only the bone, but also the adjacent tissue, say periosteum, say tendons, play a role where we might uh, have lower energy levels to get a positive reaction. You know, that's what yeah. am I, what I'm observing in the moment. So I'm mainly doing low low to medium energetic focus shockwave and I combine it usually with radial in the same session and it might be that uh, even with low energy with the with a large applicator for example with D35 mm -hmm. which means 35 diameter steel um, applicator and only 0.5 or one bar with eight hertz so slow oh, okay. and low I do it in combination you know and if it's if it's a case it's very very painful i might even start with radial just with 0.5 bars but with the atlas just okay. for a pre-treatment yeah. to get some pain reaction yeah. and then i might uh, jump in so it really depends on patient okay but usually three sessions three to five sessions two thousand shots at least i would not go higher than four thousand shots uh, on a single bone, usually because it appears from, at least from animal data, that the higher the number, so there is no re, uh, linear relationship. So the more shots, the better the result, but it's more bell-shaped. So it might be that in bones, it's in between two to 4,000. And then if you further increase 6,000, 8,000, you will have less efficacy. Okay. So that's, that's why I limit it somehow on the, on the number of shots. Sure, and I'm assuming that you, you with our with our focus device, you use a standoff, the, the large standoff with that, obviously, with a shield split or something like that. Okay, yeah. Right. Um, I don't know whether I mean you've covered everything on on the the concept of shin splints there. I mean, should, should we move on move on to I guess the middle ground, which is stress fractures. Um, and I, think... I, would, I would say just as an as a future outlook, yeah. uh, I would say that um, if and as I'm aware, the EMTT, the magnetolit machine, is yeah. available in the UK uh, already, and there are some avid users already. In yeah. the, I might be one of those. In the United Kingdom, I'm I'm aware of. Yeah. So and I combine actually combine shock, focus and radio shockwave with the shin with the EMTT and my shin splint patients. And I see a more rapid recovery and uh, less less frequent visits if I combine it simultaneously. So I do I start usually with focus, then radial, and then do some three thousand shots at least per leg with the magnetolit. And depending okay. on the architecture of the patient, I might even put the ring within uh, around the leg depending oh, on okay. ankle mobility or sometimes if it's bilateral you might place it in between so and i think in these patients they benefit even more from the combination yeah than from doing it alone okay all right as an outlook you know yeah yeah sure yeah okay 
Um, and so moving on to stress fractures, which we, we, we see less of, but we do see. And, you know, certainly uh, at the moment with COVID, with um, the, the concept that n not everyone's getting x-rays and MRIs and so forth, they're, they're usually just uh, told to go back to their physio. So we, we, I've seen certainly a few more of those through lockdown because people are doing more walking and running and so forth. And I think it, it comes back to this question, which is ever more the conversation with Shockwave, which was six or seven years ago, Shockwave was just for recalcitrant, difficult to treat conditions that have to be chronic before you use Shockwave. And now we're seeing more evidence where we're starting to intervene in, in acute cases because we see that there's evidence now for enhanced healing rather than just changing the nature of what's happening in the tissue. Do you, do you see a place for Shockwave now as an early intervention for when they get chin splints straight away and you're straight in? And, and stress fractures where you think there might be a stress fracture here, I'm just going to start treating it anyway because it's only going to enhance. Are you starting to use it more like that? I would, I would say there are different, let's say, perceptions. On the one hand, um, how, for example, the ISMST and others got the recommendation was based on published evidence. Mm -hmm. So if in a given, let's say, study, uh, for example, pseudoarthrosis or non-union patient, which is at least six months of non-healing, are included and the result is positive, it is delineated only for this cohort, which means yeah. six months. In tendons, the very same thing. So usually uh, for Achilles tendon, for example, patients in this trial, who, which have been published, had at least three months of mm. In, uh, of tendon problems and then they could be included. Yeah. So therefore the evidence derived from the study is only for chronic patients. And we have only a tiny number of papers which included acute patients. That's why we do not have that yeah. much of solid evidence. Mm. And I did not know, I uh, did not touch by numbers, but I would say at least, I would say 90, 95% of all papers deal with more chronic conditions and maybe, maybe 5% acute, so less than three months. Yeah. That's, that's what reality is in the moment. Sure. On the other hand, from a mechanistical point of view, if we start with a bone, if a bone which did not heal for six months receives shock waves and heals with a four out of five chance, so with an 80% chance in pseudotrosis, in non-unions which have been established for six months, why not? Mm -hmm. Should a, a bone benefit if it's not healing for three months, not yes, for six, yeah. for three months, mm -hmm. by the very same and maybe even less energy or even less sessions maybe yeah. and then a step further if we have a patient with an acute fresh fracture it might be that if you do shockwaves early enough you might even enhance or accelerate healing in that very patient mm. and i'm in the moment only aware and i will show it in a second of one single uh, patient or one single paper. I'm not sure whether or not. Are you seeing this yes, paper? Yes, got the... that. Yeah. So, so it is published in the year 2009 from Italy, from Bari, with Biaccio Moretti and Angela Nutanacoli, who, which very mm, smart people in shockwave, mm -hmm. and they, I will show you in a second, they included 
204 cases through atrosis did shockwaves? Fine. They did 16 cases of fresh closed fractures of the tibia, fresh. And they applied focus shockwave with a Storz device at that point of time. And I will highlight this in fresh fractures in these seven, uh, 16 cases. The shockwave was done one month after external fixation and with 0.07 up to 0.17 millijoules, so low to medium energetic. And they could show an acceleration of healing and fresh factors. And they propose that maybe an interaction with NO, with natural oxide, right. might play a role in the beneficial healing in fresh factors with lower energy. And this is, for me, my only paper I'm aware of, which dealt with acute or fresh fractures, which has been published in the moment. So this is this is what we know yeah. from 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 science. So yeah, there might be. But on the other hand, I would say the perspective: if uh, if we have if we are avid shockwave users. Hmm. And we want to provide the best evidence and the best treatment for your patient. Yeah. So ensure everybody will agree that we want to have the most or the fastest healing possible mm. in every patient. Yeah. Sure. However, from a rational point of view, a norm, a, a fresh fracture of the radius, which is done maybe conservatively in a patient which who has no risk factors like diabetes, like smoking, whatever. It will heal within six weeks with a plaster nonetheless. Mm. So there is no not the place or not the argument yeah. that if a patient was in six months, weeks or five weeks, where's the argument, where's the benefit? And from an insurance point of view, I would fully agree that there is no argument. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, the only cohort where I would support early um, shockwave therapy for bony acceleration are high or highest level athletes, for example, in soccer. Mm -hmm. And we are aware that on a Champions League level, even in the year 2014, one day off, on Champions League is 20,000 euro right. one day. It's an so economic if it, decision. If it is one week faster, yeah. it is 140,000 euros, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And only in that perspective, in these high-level athletes where every participation in a game is very, very costly, hmm. then it is okay. But in even if I say I'm doing it in a marathon runner, which who runs or who wins New York City Marathon, even in this case, I would not support in the moment preventively to use it in an acute fracture because yeah. usually it will heal, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's the perspective. Yeah. So, I because people are using machines, more machine, machine, yeah. and, you know, one has to find the fine line where yeah. it is getting to overtreatment. Yes, I completely agree. And as well, we have to now it's becoming more common and uh, it's a part of the conversation. I, I treat um, some motocross riders, professional motocross riders, 
And once once you tend to get in with one or two of them and they then tell their friends, you must go see this guy. He's got all the best kit and equipment and um, and they're, they're for, they, they always break stuff and they, they just come along and sit in my room and they've only broken it two, three weeks and they almost want you to do it. And I think we're seeing more of that where patients are now a lot more information's out there. Oh, could you just not shockwave it? It will speed it up. And it's, of course, you want to do as much as you can to help them. But you need, like you say, you need to make those decisions based upon the evidence and in your, in your, money as well. In your, motocross, in your motocross uh, riders, I would say, and I, I did when I was still in uh, Hanover Medical School some 15 years ago, We, I had a cohort of, okay, series of uh, motocross riders suffering uh, uh, scaphoid fractures mm. when landing yeah. uh, on the bike. So I would make the case that in these special cohort and on locations, so location-wise in a scaphoid where we know it is prone for pseudotrosis. Yeah. And if, if you have a A-type scaphoid fracture, which is by definition, healing with a plaster only, with no operation. In this very patient, if it's a motor uh, cross -cyc uh, cyclist, I would say, okay, one could argue the risk for pseudotrosis is very, very high. Mm. And we have a non-union non risk. Under this circumstance, I would advocate that it might be a good idea to do it, you know? Yeah. But I would say, usually, Nature is quite smart in healing, and usually it does not need an, on every single second our external help, even if I have marvelous magical machines. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but nature is even smarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, so, as we've moved on to naturally there to to, to pseudoarthrosis, um, the the mechanisms you sort of touched upon earlier, um, and would you say rather like we have with tendinopathies with with uh, with fracture healing, we know that lower extremity tendinopathies tend to, to respond better in the literature than upper extremity. So I would rather treat a an Achilles and a plantar fasciitis rather than a than a tennis elbow. The evidence is just a bit more compelling. And do do you see Ed? Do you what what would be your take on uh, certain parts of the body in terms of pseudoarthrosis? You mentioned. Uh, scaphoid there but we see a lot of you know the tibia tibia non-union is, is is the more common do you see a difference in outcome in terms of bone pathology so actually uh, Wolfie Schaden uh, who is the let's say president of ICMST and is in the moment I believe the person alive the most experienced in treating shockwaves to atrocious patients and he started in uh, more than two decades ago and did a thorough analysis of all of his cases. So he can say location-wise, my lung bone on the humerus has a success rate with my electrohydraulic focus machine of say 70%. The scapoid has some 65%. Right. The uh, metatarsal has some whatever percent. Yeah. Overall, he says, overall, he sees a 80%, 80% success rate in non-unions. But, you know, it's not only location. It is patient factors. It is age of the patient. It is smoking or not. It is plaster or not. It is time of non-union. So there are differences if union, non-union is only six months or one year or two years. So the longer the established union is... Um, evident 
the poorer the results. And then there are even changes or um, differences in atrophic, hypertrophic, and so on, pseudotrosis. So it is, sure, location-wise different. And for example, I believe that the worst results are actually on the scaphoid and the worst results, although there is not that much, hmm. uh, on the humerus. So I looked in every, what I found, and even in this very book from 2000, from Wolfie Schaden, the very first experience, because there is not that much evidence. And I looked just on long bones of the humerus while, because I did some cases on this and want to get the idea. And it appears that they only had a 40 to 50% consolidation rate. Right. So it appears that the humerus is poor. And, you know, and I'm preparing a case where I did shockwaves and the EMPT, where we succeeded within three treatments uh, after nine, nine months of non-union. So therefore, location-wise, there are differences. But I would not say the upper extremity is always worse than the lower. It really depends on location and on the numbers of publications. And for example, uh, the epicondylitis, uh, we have some 120, 130 uh, trials on shockwaves, and there is not that much on and shoulder. We have 200. So and I would not fully agree that the outcomes are much more better on the lower extremities than the upper extremity, but it need, really needs to, well, you have to have a precise diagnosis. So it plays a role, patient age, uh, calcifying tendonitis on a degree of calcifying tendonitis, degree of inflammation, onset or duration of pain really yeah. matters quite so much on success rate. So there are differences if you only have four weeks, eight weeks or 12 weeks of, of uh, symptoms before your shockwave. So this will influence your outcome quite significantly. So therefore, there are much more factors than only location, I would say. Okay. In, in this country, which I know we've talked about before as well, you know, there's a difference in terms of the NHS funding and uh, the orthopedic world accepting shockwave in our country. We seem to be a little behind Europeans, particularly Germans. And when I have discussed some non-union treatment with uh, a couple of orthopedic surgeons where I live, it's uh, it's it's instantly, you know, uh, this this guy needs to just be operated again. And that's just what it is. Right. Do you do you still is there still a, a sort of split in, in Germany and in Europe about whether you are absolutely going to try shockwave first and or you're going to go straight to operative intervention? It, stri it strikes me as always with shockwave that why, why the argument against it is so is so poor, because why would you not try a non-invasive approach first for three weeks before you try anything else? Right. We, and when I my last my last example of this was where the surgeon actually came back to me and said, well, it's nearly nine months. And at nine months, he can get insurance funding for an exogen device, which is an ultrasound, low energy ultrasound, which they wear all day, pretty much like some cumbersome thing on their leg. Um, and then I tried to have a conversation about sound waves and there being some commonality there. And I didn't get anywhere. It just wanted to op operate again. I mean, is that just a failure of, of our country to really take take on focus shockwave at the moment? Or is this a problem across the world where you still have this sort of split between those that want to operate and those that want to try something else? I think as usual, and it's universal, uh, that good times take time. 
And this this is the case. And if you only look on the, let's say, on the Calcio randomized control trial on TB and on unions where they did operation or shockwaves and they had similar complications, uh, similar healing rates and less complications in the shockwave non-invasive group. Uh, no wonder, you know, <laughs> however, uh, it is, you know, you have to read it and you have to be open and acknowledge evidence. And what I see in Germany in the moment is even from the orthopedic trauma union, whatever journals and so on, that in the last two, three years, there is much more of an awareness that there is something else than the nail, you know, mm. An awareness, I would say, not not an acknowledgement, awareness, you know. Yeah, yeah. And there are papers now, reviews, even in German trauma journals and so on, focusing on non-invasive ways for bone stimulation with lipos, as you mentioned, the ultrasound machine and even shockwaves and even pulse magnetic fields. So there are these three, or I would say from a surgeon point of view, as I'm a trained surgeon, there is something beyond your OR some techniques, some machines, which might help your patients without you being in the OR uh, and without any risk. And especially if you put it in the COVID perspective, where let's say this is a totally planned or scheduled operation, a pseudotrosis repair. This is not an urgent thing, yeah. so no emergency. So it will not, he will, or a patient will not be operated in the moment in COVID times because of an union, no chance. So even in this perspective, it might come becomes compelling that a non-invasive way to help bones to heal in four out of five cases, if you do it appropriately with the correct machine, with the correct parameters, you have a four out of five chance to have a good result. This is quite good. You know, yeah. so they have to acknowledge, but it really takes time. And even, you know, it's more than 20, uh, the German Shockwave Society is 25 this year. So we are, we are speaking the mouth all the time again and again and again. And even after 25 years, it is not that easy. And even we have 10,000 machines, Shockwave machines in Germany, 10,000, you know. Focused or not focused devices? Combined, combined, but we combined, don't know. Okay, yeah, yeah. For separation, but mainly, mainly focus, sure. Because, you know, focus are from the beginning and yeah, radio yeah. came 99 and 2000. Yeah. So, you know, mainly I would say 70% most likely or 65% is focused. Hmm. So, so even then, you know, even in the in the heaven of shockwaves, which is Germany, from that perspective, inventors, numbers of machines, yeah. uh, society, and so on. Even then, it's hard, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure, okay. So it is not a UK problem, I would say. It is it is worldwide, you know, yeah. and it takes really time to and and sincere and good good data. Mm. and a sincere approach to these patients and well, to these doctors or to surgeons. And I would say in the moment they acknowledge that shockwaves even might be in combination with operations. So there's no this or the other, yeah. but the combination or, you know, there is just another avenue to take or sure. you know, to combine. This, uh, otherwise, it is more, uh, it's more offending, I would say, if you come, if you are a, a uh, steel 
uh, surgeon. And if you come around with a shockwave machine, you know, it is, it might be somehow offending for yeah. you, you know, yeah. because you say, or okay, threatening. what is yeah. my rest purpose, my life yeah. purpose, you know? Yeah. Then. So that's how I see it. Yeah, you know, okay. it really takes time and you cannot, you know, you, you cannot convince everybody. That's for sure. Okay. I think looking at my bit of paper over here that I have as a pointer that I think we've covered most points today. Have you, have you got anything that you would like to cover in terms of bone pathologies that we haven't? Have you got some interesting slides that you can impress us all with? Cause you always love a slide. Uh, I can, yeah, wait a sec. I, I will have a look on what I, I have. Yeah. I, I will show I will show something which I just got to know by chance. So as you might have heard that shockwave started in Germany, in Munich, in urology on 1980, so 40 years ago. Yeah. And it was an electrohydraulic focused machine. And this was published in the British Lancet on my seventh birthday, actually, on 30, December 13, <laughs> 1980. What I learned last week by chance, because I watched the video which, uh, who, uh, which Wolfgang Schaden prepared for the 20th anniversary of the Colombian Shockwave Society o OCC, which will be uh, broadcasted in two weeks, mm -hmm. that the observation from a urologist that shockwaves could help bones was done by Gerald Haupt in 1986, who was a, uh, a urologist in, in Bochum, and he found not if you have a, a stone, a kidney stone in the kidney, but if the stone is within the duct in the ureter mm -hmm. or within the bladder, they, they did shockwaves at that time. And in the moment you had a ureter or a bladder stone, the shockwave traveled, sorry, traveled through the pelvis and they acknowledged a thickening of the pelvis. Ah. And this was the first observation that the shockwave, the electrohydraulic shockwave, might do something not only on the kidney stone or on the bladder stone, but also on the bone. And then 11 years later, this very gentleman, uh, I will show you in a second, um, actually did, did his PhD thesis and in his PhD thesis, he invented radial shockwaves. <laughs> so as an, uh, let's say, development step from focus shockwave with tiny or smaller uh, devices, they did first the Lito class, which is you see here. Yeah. And they tried to ballistically hit kidney stones and that at that point of time interestingly it's only in german this phd thesis but this is from his phd thesis he even did some bone treatments at that point with ballistic uh, radial data shockwave therapy on teeth and on different locations so this very same gerald Hau, did you just did you just say teeth he he is so deeply and this is by chance i, I didn't know since a week you know, Carsten, did you? Is that what I'm looking at? I think I'm looking at. He he used ballistic radial shockwave on yeah, teeth. Yeah, this machine. Yeah, right. This is a so-called at that point of time because it was EMS, the lithoclast, and the lithoclast was the first machine to offer in the in the very beginning 
ballistic as radial was first named ballistic right, pressure okay, waves, sure. you know, because it's only a projectile hitting back and forth. And, you know, and this was published in 97 and actually EMS came out on 98 and starts in 99 with radial, with radial shockwave devices. And this, for example, was already the very first radial shockwave device, just to give you an idea from, from Schwartz. That's how it started. So just to get the idea how things oftentimes by chance develop. So a urologist observed an iliac bone thickening and said there might be something. So let's look in. Oh, interesting. And the, yes. the, the, the drive for that was just to make a machine that was smaller and obviously a lot cheaper that we could use as cheaper. Know, yeah, cheaper. Yeah, sure. Cheaper. And um, I might say, okay, I will show just at the end uh, two cases um, on the combined treatment of shockwaves and EMTT, just to give you an idea. This is a failed scaphoid fracture repair in a uh, young consultant. And he had the first operation in 2012, the second in December last year with an iliac non-vascularized bone graft. And it did not heal again. So two times surgery failed. And in March, in the first lockdown of COVID, um, I did three sessions of focus shockwave and the EMTT magnetolit because the magnetolit was installed in this practice on March 7. So uh, very early on, I did the treatment in this patient with a combination of focus. You see here 4,000 shots, high energetic, and the EMTT machine with 6,000 shots, three wow. sessions. Did then um, a uh, 3D scanning with some noise reduction special techniques because of his screw. And um, you see here his scaphoid had healed within the three treatments. Within, within the three six treatments. Weeks, within six weeks after uh, the installation of the therapy, which right. did not heal beforehand for some a decade, you know? Wow. And this has just been um, accepted for publication in the medicine journal, which will be published soon because I yesterday saw the proofs. So it might, it will be open access uh, in the very near future, hopefully before Christmas, but even hopefully before December, I would say. And in that regard, because we talked a lot of bones, I see a second very nice indication is symphysitis. So if you have symphysitis with, with some MRI uh, bone edema, then the application of focus shockwave and EMTT might be a very, very nice uh, tool. So diagnosis like in this bone edema patient, diagnosis with the MRI is key. Um, and there is even one uh, small study doing only EMTT, so only magnetolite treatment. Um, uh, and they could really, in, in soccer players, show a tremendous decrease of pain uh, immediately after uh, at mean four or five sessions of EMTT. So in synthesizers where you have oftentimes bone edema and you have to look at an MRI. But if bone edema is there, then EMTT with or without shockwave, focus shockwave, are very, very good option because otherwise uh, in synthesitis, patients or athletes are off for a year, a year and a half or longer. So right. it is a quite devastating um, situation. And it appears that especially in this indication, 
this uh, therapy is very, very, very nice to consider. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good point because they are difficult to treat, aren't they? And, and I do get asked, yeah. so just on that note quickly, on, on bony edema, yeah. especially for those of us yeah. that have got radial devices and uh, focus devices, not maybe but with EMTT. What, how do you think the mechanism is that you're treating, say, a, an osteoarthritic knee with, with uh, tibial edema? How do you, because there's been some really good uh, research on, on MRI proof that edema reduces within a week after treatment. What, what is the mechanism, do you think? Do you think that is just the pressure wave helping to create literally pressure waves through the tissue that's helping to clear you know in a very mechanical way the edema or do you do you go back to a cellular response that's then somehow reducing it i think it is more a cellular response and an immediate response so oftentimes if we consider or if we speculate on mechanisms underlying mechanisms the timing plays a role so when does something happen you know there are some effects with shock waves immediately where we cannot say it will be gene expression because gene express or protein expression takes at least three four days you know so if you have an immediate pain relief there are some interactions with substance p cgrp some pain receptors immediately and i would say there is the universal idea of i will i'll show you in a second the inflammation uh, cascade if, if if you will so if we uh, wait a sec. So here is it. If in every tissue, in a bone, in a tendon, in a muscle, if there is an injury in the very beginning, you have an inflammation yeah. with an upregulation of certain cytokines. And this is followed by reparation and two phases of remodeling. So this course is, let's say, a year, I would say. And there are data, or there, let's say, if it if you put it in a perspective of only four days, you see here that the early inflammation phase is mediated by a concert of different cytokines, not only one, mm -hmm. but a concert of it in, let's say, a strong area. And there is data supporting that, uh, I have not it here in the moment, that shockwaves somehow interfere early with the inflammation cascade. So if you say if a bone, re bone edema reduction is very, very early, in my point of view, it might be that the inflammation area, because it's an edema, there is fluid, that's mm -hmm. why you see it on MRI, and there are fluid changes immediately. So it might be, in my view, at best, my best or my educated guess is that in the anti-inflammatory effect of shock waves, in that case, focus shock wave might somehow interfere with that inflammation cascade. That's what I uh, suspect on this. So okay. that's my guess. All right. Super. I think that's gone on longer than the half an hour we planned, Carsten. <laughs> a bit. <laughs> a little bit. Well, you're an interesting guy. A uh, smidgen. So... A smidgen. A smidgen. I don't know what even it is. What is it? It's gone over probably an hour, it feels like It's now. old English. It's a very bit, a tiny bit. Ah, you can, tiny you can... bit. It's enough for a biscuit and a cup of tea. Because once, once a time, once upon a time, I was a scholar in Broadstairs. No in way. The southern eastern part of England. That's where I'm and... from. 
In Broadstairs? I used to teach at a, a foreign language school in Broadstairs. Well, in Ramsgate, mm. next door. Yeah. So I spent there three weeks uh, on a when I was in university in a summer camp. And I was living in a very lovely family. And him was an artist. She was an artist. She was an American artist. And he was a UK artist. And they taught me some... Uh, we tried to get some words which are so weird <laughs> that every even native English uh, UK man is deeply impressed. Ah. So a spigeon. A spigeon. That is a proper this. old English term. <laughs> well, next time we meet and have a beer, you're gonna have to tell me where you stayed in Broadstairs because I know every part of it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, how small the word is. It isn't wow. it just. Right. Well, look. On that note, right. I'm gonna say thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Good as ever. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. Stay much. safe and Cheers. healthy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.